Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. <laughs> it has felt increasingly like um, an art project of sorts, one that we really put our, our hearts and souls into. We pay put an awful lot of attention to the smallest details. You know, like I I spend tens of hours just working on bibs, right? Both the design of the bibs and the communication with bibs and you know, it's just, it's an amazing amount of kind of like detailed work. And Okay, you people sit tight, hold the fort and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Welcome, listener, to Dark Zone number 76. As you may remember, we spent some time at Rootstock Racing's The Endless Mountains back in June of 2023. Over the course of five days, we put out five episodes and tried to capture the entire race experience. Uh, Solid listeners right there, folks, so feel free to jump back in the queue and check out those episodes. As a wrap-up activity, I I speak with Brent and Abby, the RDs of Rootstock Racing. Uh, It's a deep dive. It's a long episode. We really get into the race itself, the planning, the volunteers, the racers, the stories that came out of it. And this is not only interesting for the race director, but also for the racer. Uh, You get a sense of what goes on behind the scenes. So enjoy the episode. Um, We're on the cusp of getting on a plane and heading east uh, across the Atlantic Ocean to the Faroe Islands for the Nordic Islands Adventure Race. Uh, It's going to be a 168-hour barrel of fun for all of the 24 teams that are making it. The Dark Zone will be there racing. I'm also bringing my recorder, and who knows who I will have a chance to speak with. There will certainly be an episode on the other side of that race. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for being a Dark Zone listener. The podcast continues to grow over time. Uh, Listenership is up. People are enjoying the shows. The whole goal is to bring content to the adventure racing community, and we are always open to your thoughts and ideas. Apologies to many folks who reached out to me. So much good content, only so much time. I have a whole bunch of episodes that are in the uh, the barrel that I want to get out that are older, almost as far back as the winter and the fall. Such good people there. Um, and I know that the line is long to have a chance to talk about adventure racing, and we are glad to have you here as a listener. So keep having fun out there, keep racing, and enjoy this episode of The Dark Zone. As always, thank you for being here. I'd like to also mention the Dark Zone's charity partner, Send Athletics. We are proud to support their mission to empower young women through mountaineering-based leadership training and community service. All of our listeners are encouraged to visit ascendathletics.org to learn more about Ascend and their work in helping to develop leadership and resiliency in young women in Pakistan and Afghanistan through fitness, mental health, community service, and mountaineering. Please note that Ascend pays nothing for this mention. We just love the work that they do, and are happy to spread the word. Be sure to check out their website for some upcoming activities that anyone can get involved in. Welcome to the Dark Zone and Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. For those who've been listening to the last several episodes of the Dark Zone, you know that we embedded ourselves in the Endless Mountains Adventure Race, a 120-hour race over five days put on by Rootstock Racing out of Philadelphia. 
our guests tonight are, are Abby Perkis and Brent Friedland, who are the the uh, race directors, founders, inventors, med scientists behind the race itself. And I'm delighted to have them on the show. As listeners know, I was embedded in the race and we had a chance to really bring you a lot of the coverage over the course of our our podcast, the five that we did there, alongside all the media that came out of it. And the vision for this episode of The Dark Zone is to give Abby and Brent a chance to talk out loud about the race itself and to sort of reveal to the world uh, what goes into all the planning of a 120-hour race, the months and the weeks and the years that go into planning it, the people that are involved, the logistics. So Abby and Brent, we're very happy that you're here tonight. Thanks for coming on The Dark Zone. You've been frequent guests and we're grateful that you're here with us. Thanks for having us, Brian. We're excited to unpack with you. Unpack, right? And that's a, that's a great word to use because there's a lot there's a lot in that suitcase. There's a lot that we, we did over the course of those five days and went into it. When when the race begins, you know, the, the, the one line in adventure racing is, is that the, the hardest thing to do is to get to the start line. You assemble all the gear, your teammates, you travel to the start line, you set everything up and the race then begins. And I think that for a race director, especially for a five-day race, six-day race, 10-day race, whatever it is, that's that same exact feeling, but getting on steroids. Can you tell us a bit about what what it took to get to the start line of the Annalise Mountains? When did the planning begin? When did you begin to talk about it? When did you begin to scope it out? Brent, what do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, this year's race is the second in what we are tentatively expecting will be a four or five edition series of races in the Pennsylvania wilds. You know, one of the original goals of the Endless Mountains, uh, which is named after a region, a kind of an outdoor region of Pennsylvania, um, was to really showcase the entire two million acre region known as the Pennsylvania wilds. Um, you know, so in a sense, the the planning for this began three years ago when we kind of started envisioning that. That said, um, you know, for this year's race, you know, we really started literally right after the 2022 event finished. As I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when we packed up in Clarion after the conclusion of 2022, did I drive home or you drove home? We had two cars out there and um, we actually talked about the 2023 edition on the drive home. And then within days, Brent was in the woods looking at the the course for 2023. And we can talk some about our scouting process and all that, if that's if that's relevant for you. So, so clearly 2022 went well enough that you were so if you will, you know, such a high coming out of 2022, that 2023 was, was going to happen no matter what. Like you had that feeling right away. There was no, even a thought about giving a break to it. Uh, Not, not really. Uh, You know, I think that, you know, we had 30, I think we had 32 teams at the start line in 2022, which is by international expedition racing norms. That's a respectable field of teams, if not maybe slightly bigger than average. So, you know, from a, kind of like a sustainability perspective, like we had the numbers. Um, we very quickly uh, got, I mean, we, we had a lot of really amazing feedback during the race. So it, I, I suppose if the race had really gone off the rails in some, some way, we may have chosen to kind of pack it in, but um, I think it went really well. So I think when the race finished, we kind of just started rolling into next year. I mean, the reality is, is we know that these races take an awful lot of planning. Um, you can't just wait three or four months. At least we can't wait three or four months. I suppose one could, 
But, you know, the quality of these events, I think, is really what you put into it. And it's not just the scouting. You know, there's so many other layers that um, take so much time that really a year is required to, I think, really prep for one of these events, at least, again, to the standards we hold for ourselves. Well, and the other piece of that that I think is important to name is that the 2022 edition was a demonstration race in the Adventure Racing World Series. And from ARWS, there was an expectation that if the demo gear went well, we would run another edition, a full qualification, a full qualifying race the following year to kind of build on that momentum. And then we could slide into whatever schedule worked for our lives. So once we signed on with ARWS, that was kind of part of the expectation. So so let's give some background for the listener out there who ARWS is Adventure Racing World Series based out of South Africa. The CEO is Heidi Muller. There are races that are held around the world. And those races, there's demonstration races like Ozark this year was a demonstration race. And then if you do well there, you then become a full race. And winning the full race qualifies you for the world championship. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the the winners of the demonstration race do not get a slot for worlds, but winners of a qualifying race do. So you you knew at the end of 2022, because you were trying out, if you will, for the larger picture for a a world championship spot, 2023 was pretty much going to happen unless things completely fell apart. But I felt like we knew that even before 2022 happened, right? Like once we kind of shook the proverbial hand with Heidi or made the proverbial handshake with Heidi, um, that that was part of the part of the deal. Gotcha, gotcha. And twenty twenty two was a success. Clarion was a, was a great partner. I remember we've talked about it, hearing about how successful we were out there. But then it was time to go into twenty twenty three. And in many ways, it's you know it's like they say in the mob, you're as good as your last paycheck, right? And so as good as you do there, as as much as you do, the next race is a whole other high wire act that you go into. And to your point, Brent, it's it's much more than just the scouting, right? Anybody could go. Well, I'm not say anybody. Many people could go and could find beautiful places to bring other people. It's it's collecting, it's getting all the pieces in pay, place, the sequence, everything going in one, in one huge enterprise to get it going forward. Before we get into the course itself, before we talk about the actual race itself, can you both talk a bit about who you had a lineup behind you in terms of the sponsors and the organizations and the towns and the lodging and the housing? Logistically, how do you get a race like this going? And I And think about the person sitting at home now who's an uh, aspiring race director who's doing well, who's doing 12, 24, 36 hour races and wants to expand it a little bit. Who did you have to get behind Rootstock Racing for this to be successful? Yeah, so I'll maybe I'll start by highlighting three of the big ones that were kind of local to the region. So, um, you know, there's different kinds of support, right? There's, you know, financial support, um, which uh, allows us to add some of the bells and whistles to the event, which um, helps us kind of make it uh, more of the premier event we want it to be. Um, You know, there's also support that's a bit more in kind in nature, though not necessarily, you know, gear in kind. But for example, one of the very first contacts I made um, in that week, I went up there after 22 the 2022 race, um, I swung by a little campground called uh, the Crooked Creek Campground, which is up um, kind of along the Pine Creek in Gaines, Pennsylvania. And I actually popped in there um, largely to ask them to help me figure out where the the rock site was, where we did our, our ropes work for this year's 23 course. Um, I had learned that they they did a little bit of guiding um, online. So, and I was having some trouble finding those rocks on my own. I thought they were somewhere where they weren't. Um, so I stopped in really for that, uh, that little bit of help. And one thing led to another. And we started talking to them about 
um, some in-kind support where uh, they they honestly helped me get through winter scouting by offering me a warm bed here and there. Um, they of course did the 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 ropes work for us, so that was a contact that was a contracted agreement. But um, they were super helpful in setting up that entire section, um, and then again supporting me on probably half a dozen or so um, scouting trips up there. Um, so they were great. Uh, they also served as the host site for our light race. Um, they kind of served as the headquarters and registration for that and the finish line for the light race and uh, were just wonderful the whole way around. Um, another one I would definitely want to shout out is Clinton County. Um, you know, so we have found over the last couple of years that, you know, working with local county chambers of commerce have been very helpful and instrumental. Um, you know, they have different degrees of ability to actually help in like a traditional sponsorship way. Um, you know, but some of them are extremely helpful with contacts and Clinton County turned out to be probably the most helpful partner we've had in two years of directing endless mountains and in our entire run as rootstock racing. Um, so really instrumental in helping us get the right meetings with the right people, um, getting us contact information for private landowners when we needed it, um, being able to just answer quick questions that we had about things like road closures and construction, super helpful. And then one more was um, the Visit Potter Tioga County um, kind of Chamber of Commerce who had a really great grant program. And that also, again, helped us be able to, you know, invest in things like uh, high-end bike jerseys and tech tech running shirts as uh, additional swag on top of the buffs and t-shirts that we were going to do anyway. So if I hear so. you correctly, there's, you listed four basic components. There. There's a, there's a financial component where someone actually helps you out there. The other part is the, the in-kind, right? Where, where a, a local vendor or business helps you out there. You mentioned working with a governmental agency that may have some sort of programs there and obviously visitors bureaus. So really those four and, and, and not to be too granular to that, but that, that's literally you making a phone call, sending an email, doing some research. It's, it's, that's how, how uncomplex, that's how simple this entire process is. Well, and I would add a fifth to that, which is logistics. And for us, we knew that Williamsport would be a good hub for this year's course geographically. It's also one of the bigger towns in the region. Um, and so we needed to find, for example, a, a site that could host the racers. We needed to find a site that could host us for a banquet after the event. And we kind of had set this precedent from the previous year. We worked with Clarion University, which is now Penn West University, I believe. Um, and that was such a hit with racers, right? Racers came in, they had a dorm room, you know, what, what it lacked in amenities it made up for by them being able to leave all their stuff in the room for the entire week. So it just like logistically, it was really streamlined. And then we worked with Clarion River Brewing last year as the finish line sponsor, but then also the post-race banquet. And so we replicated that in Williamsport and we worked with Lycoming College and New Trail Brewing, both of whom ended up becoming incredibly supportive of the event um, in terms of in-kind donations. And Lycoming actually ended up giving us uh, an unexpected discount on some of the, the um spots at the university, which allowed us to get an additional food truck out on the course. So we were able to put that money back into the event and kind of give racers um, some added, as Brent said, some added um, bling for the experience. I, not to oversimplify, but it's almost like a little bit paid by numbers. 
like two years in a row, right? Find a, find a university that's empty come summertime. They might have summer programs, but they have room and board, right? They have food services. They have people there. They have the infrastructure in place. And then find a good local vendor. Clarion Brewing on one side, Neutral Brewing on the other, right? And and I think that that part of Pennsylvania, if you look hard enough, you find places like that. Like And Williamsport, to their credit, there were people in Williamsport that were incredibly supportive of the race. And they really, they really showed up for you. And that's a larger town. And sometimes those towns are hard to work with. So to your credit, you were able to drill into those individual people that could help you out. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things I would just, um, I do, I definitely want to highlight two or three other local partners since we're talking about them. Um, I would also just say to your point earlier, picking up the phone, it's on one level, it is that easy, right? Whether it's a phone call or an email or sometimes like it's, it's stopping in and that's not always the most comfortable thing to do, but sometimes it's literally when you're up there doing the field work, you, you drive somewhere and you take time out of the day that you'd rather spend in the woods, finding checkpoints. Um, and you stop in and you talk to somebody and you kind of cold call and ring a doorbell. Um, you know, I've literally done that with some private landowners and, yeah. So it's easy, but it also does take a fair bit of effort. And you you do sometimes uh, get rejected. You, you probably get rejected or you don't get calls back more often than not. But um, but yeah, a, a couple more that we just shout out. Um, two more local ones, the Lumber Heritage Region and uh, UPMC, um, who are uh, a big healthcare provider up in the region. We're also uh, super supportive of us in a more traditional way. You know, they were stage sponsors, um, you know, but a lot of positive energy, a lot of excitement about the event. Lumber Heritage Region, one of their representatives, Jennifer, um, who I was in contact with throughout the year, came out to the race and stopped in for a few hours up at um, Transition Area 2 and just had a great time. Um, that was true of also Julie Brennan from Clinton County. She came out to the course and, you know, got a look at things there. Um, MRS, uh, we definitely want to give a special shout out to them. They are possibly our, yeah, I think our only returning sponsor, you know, last year, you know, our sponsorship and partnerships were really based in the kind of Southern part of the, um, the region. And this year, you know, it ended up being a whole new slate of partners, but micro rafting, um, MRS, they have been with us for both years. So, um, they also great stage sponsor. Their boats are amazing. More and more adventure racers are really, um, kind of discarding their old boats and getting into MRS boats. Um, and then also the, the Penwells hotel in Wellsboro, um, again, just super excited, super supportive. Um, I think they let you set up shop there all night on the first night of the race to do that amazing, amazing first podcast you did with uh, all the racers. I guess technically it's the second podcast of the of the series, uh, but just a lot of positive energy there too. Yeah, and so and it's interesting. And you know, adventure racing is one of the more complex things is actually explaining the sport to people. Right. There is no 30 second elevator pitch. But once people find out about what a race is and what people are doing, I, I find that they feel magnetized to it, that they think that this is that they're seeing they're seeing in many ways, you know, average citizen racers out there slugging it out with a course and really doing it. And so when you find the right people like like Mike micro rafting, I believe the owner of micro rafting made it a point to come to the race, him and his family. He was like a little kid running around and taking the pictures and trying the boats out. And so in one way, people are, are pulled into the world of adventure racing. Coming back a bit granular, I'm, I'm glad you went through all the different people that worked with you. You mentioned the idea of a stage sponsor. What does that mean? Yeah, so when we set up kind of our partnership deck, we created different tiers of sponsorship. And one of those tiers is 
to sponsor an individual stage or leg of the race. And what that means is your name becomes attached to that stage. So for example, stage stage A presented by micro rafting or MRS, which was the case for this year's event. Um, and it's a really nice way to highlight a relevant entity during that part of the race. So, you know, Lumber Heritage, for example, was one, was the stage sponsor for this kind of deep woods part of the event. And gotcha. Brewing was the stage sponsor for the last leg when folks were coming back into Williamsport. And it's a neat way to kind of pair up these really wonderful networks of support with the parts of the course where they are most relevant. And the race offered live tracking. And I think the live tracking was sponsored by was it UMP, UPMC. That's exactly right. University right. of Pittsburgh Medical, Medical Center. Right, right. And so and so that's another thing for race directors to consider that not only are you going, it, it's not as simple as the fact that, hi, we'll put your name on our T-shirt. You give us some either in kind or financial contribution, but instead you could actually get involved in the granular nature of the race by having a part of the race named after you and you put on there. And I think that's a good thing to point out because, you know, aligning all of those separate sponsors into one cohesive group allows you to do more because you had how many food trucks did you have on the course for the race? We had two food trucks that came out um, and both of them we were able to cover the cost of uh, versus the racers having to pay for. Gotcha. Gotcha. So on on one hand, there's this formula in place where a sponsor will come along, will will assist you in some way, then that is then funneled back into the give the racer a better experience. Exactly. Yeah. And I would just add just, you know, another highlight since you're asking these, like you said, granular questions, but for the aspiring um, race directors, right, you know, one of our goals in going out and kind of working hard to get people on board in some kind of partnership role is, as we've said, to be able to offer some of these extra amenities, whether it's better better swag or being able to pay for two full food trucks over the course of the event, or another thing this year that, that was really wonderful that we could leverage some of this support toward was um, really filling out our media team, right? You know, so... Um, we had three full um, still photographers with uh, Nick Winia, Vlad Bacalo, and Randy Erickson. Um, you know, we had uh, a, a full videographer, Scott um, McGrath. McGrath. Um, Jeff O'Connor was uh, on call both before the race to help us uh, put together the really, really great flyovers and stage videos. And and then unfortunately, he got quite sick um, just before the race and was not able to really um, be part of the media team during the race. But luckily, we had um, our teammate, Paul Miller who was uh, part of the race last year as well um, in the, in a media sense, but much more in a, a volunteer capacity. And we were able to, um, you know, kind of have him shift over and not just do video work, but um, end up doing some really tremendous editing. So we were able to stick to our plan to release daily videos, which was what Jeff was going to be working on as well during the race. You know, so it ended up being quite a, ro- a robust media team. Um, and without some of that that great partnership, I just I don't think we would have been able to have the budget to to do that. And and let's shout out the Dark Zone podcast too, which was there in and and I think it's important to say, Brian, in an entirely volunteer capacity. Um, you came out because you are a, a fan of the sport and a you know a presence in the sport, and um, we were incredibly grateful for your support out there. I also I, I was going to say this at the very beginning, but since we're on it now for the casual listener and for the sake of being transparent and all, right? I do think it's also worth noting that, you know, Brian, uh, you were also uh, helping us behind the scenes throughout the year leading up to the race. And that was true last year too. You know, you have um, played an instrumental role um, in helping us work toward these partnership 
um, arrangements and helping us kick the tires and, you know, send those emails and work the phones and make those connections. Um, and that, that's been a really huge help to us to, to have that. And you've also been a, a really great sounding board for a lot of ideas, whether it's related to t-shirt design or course design or whatever it might be. So finish line. Finish line, right? That, that's a great one, right? Jim, right? I think, uh, and, and thank Jim you for your kind words. I, I I appreciate that. You know, and it's interesting. Absolutely. Like, if if you think about, you take me individually, but then you expand that back out. The 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 level of of commitment that people have to adventure racing is rather strong, right? The people who 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 hear the music, hear the music loud, right? They they love it, and I and I think that the all of the people that you've assembled to get involved in this, right? Because it, it takes a, a team to put all this together. I'm happy to play my role and, and, and thank you for your kind words. I think that it's, it's predicated upon the idea that something inside those 120 hours, those five days, that amazing things happen to people and people want to be a witness to it. So so let's let's roll that back a little bit, right? And I'm, I, I appreciate the, the granular nature of the sponsorship and how you put that together and the in-kind. But like, like just like an army runs on its stomach, a race runs on its volunteers. What was the volunteer core like for this race? Oh my gosh, we had an embarrassment of riches when it came to volunteers. We had what close to 35 people who came out either for the entire week or for parts of the week. And a number of those folks were returning from last year. So we had already built kind of that muscle memory and that rapport and that trust with each other. Um, this was a more complicated race than last year. And I think in some ways, not in some ways, in all ways, uh, a more logistically ambitious course, and maybe even more than we recognized as we were developing it. And the, the volunteers just stepped up in ways that were so, um, like, I don't, I don't have the words for how what do you think that is? it was. Like, why do you think like, like 35 people, right? And to varying degrees, some people were there the entire five days, with their six days, seven days, some people were there for a day and a half because the other commitments. What do you think it is about the sport and about rootstock racing and about the experience that people will give up a week of their time, either vacation time or they'll arrange their schedules to come and observe and play a role in what happened? What do you think they get in Everything in life we do, we do because we get something back out of it, right? What's, what's, that's human nature, right? What do you think it is that is returned to the volunteer that makes it worth their time? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, with 35, call it 35 folks, there's obviously like a, there's myriad re reasons for that. Um, I, I think one of the... <laughs> I think one of the the core reasons, and I'm going to focus on a certain subset of the volunteers, and these are the volunteers that I would say um, are kind of the the ones that have the most experience around the sport, right? They're they're the people we would tend to put in charge of things if we can't be present, um, you know. So I, I mean, I would love to take the time to name all 35 folks who came out, um, but I, I honestly I don't want to miss anybody, um, so I'm not going to try to do that, but. You know, I can kind of probably highlight the small core group who were kind of the, like the leadership folks, right? Um, you know, Greg Prouty, um, who's been racing and volunteering with us since the beginning in 2015. Jim Roundsley, special shout out to Jim Roundsley. He's a uh, he's from the UK and um, you know, unbelievably experienced uh from working with the Itera events over in the UK. He happened to be over here and reached out to us and said he wanted to help out. We know him from competing over in 5-day races in the UK, um, you know, four of the last like 12 years. Um Shelly Johansson, Keith Gibalante, 
Glenn Lewis. Glenn Lewis. I mean, you yourself. We're going to forget somebody. We're going to forget somebody. And so anybody that's listening, please, please forget. Well, I'm going to shut that down um, right now. So stop talking right now yeah. because there's more well, people. People will be so left out. Yeah, this, I mean, core group of folks. I, I think some of it is, or my point is they've been around the sport and they know what the racers are going through, right? Um, and so they know the pain, they know the suffering, they know the joy, they know the highs, they know the lows, um, they know all of the challenges and they know what it takes to get them through the race. And they know that it's good volunteers. Um, you know, and I, I think that those people are so giving of themselves because they've been on the other side of it. Um, you get a whole group of other folks that I think are, are more new to the sport and are, are more curious perhaps than, than anything else. Um, we had I think- family members of racers. We had people who were local to Williamsport who had read about it in the newspaper and reached out. Um, and they, they were just as critical to the team, played left yeah. of a leadership role, but did the slog work, right? Like slept at a TA to make sure bike boxes didn't get tampered with or at a, at a staffed CP, you know, they would spend 18 hours there just checking in racers and making sure, you know, bikes were, were watched while racers went and ran off to a beautiful overlook. Like they did the grunt work too. Yeah. Misty and Mike Garrison, two more that definitely deserve kind of the, that kind of individual shout out. Um, but really, like so many people that came out just for a day, just for a few hours, you know, last year at Clarion, we, I don't know if we had anyone this year like this. Last year at Clarion at the finish line, there were just like these four, frankly, random people from Clarion who had heard about the race, had no connection to adventure racing or endless mountains or anyone in the event. And they showed up and they like sat, stood down on the boat dock where everyone was taking out all night long, um, literally just to watch people's gear. I, I mean, <laughs> so it's it's really amazing what people are willing to sign up for. I think being outdoors and seeing these people do amazing things is enough for most people. I think you're right about that. I think that the, the there are people who do it themselves recreationally and want to be witness to it, right? They want to help the other racer out. And I think that there's a subset of people who are to, are generally curious about it. And and I think that for anybody out there who's listening, the, the, the gateway to many adventure racers is a volunteer experience is to go out and find your local race director and talk a little bit about, you know, what is like, how can I help out and go help at registration, go help at a TA. Um, there are many, many people out there I know who just, who were, they were, they were AR curious, but they weren't ready to jump into a big race, but by being in that world and along the way, they tend to bring people along with them. Clearly there's a, a lot that has to take place inside of an adventure race for it to be successful. And you both can't do each other's jobs. And you mentioned strengths, you mentioned weaknesses before Abby. So in a very rough sense of the word, when you look at, at what you both pick up and what you're good at, what are the things that your own natural skill set makes you good at in terms of organization and planning? Like, like, like what value do you bring to the partnership and to Rootstock Racing that you find is intrinsic to yourself? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I do the lion's share of the coursework, but, you know, we are talking about all of it. Right. So, you know, I'm the one working with the maps. I'm, I, I tend to be the one doing 90% of the course scouting, which didn't used to be the case. You know, um, before we had kids, Abby and I would scout every course we designed together in its entirety. And then unfortunately, I mean, we love our kids, but, uh, you know, an unfortunate side effect of having a family is that we just can't find enough right. child care to actually make that possible any longer. Um, and because I am the lead navigator of our team and just 
I think have a, I, I'm able to go out into the woods and do things a lot more effectively and faster. So I, I do all of that work, but um, we often talk about what kind of the goals are before I go out, right? So kind of the macro level course planning, and then I go out and do a lot of the micro work. Um, and then we always talk about what um, I found out there, right? So, you know, and I think that's kind of how we divide a lot of the work. So I, I also tend to do a lot of the design work um like you graphic know, design in terms of kind of the the swag and and stuff like that um but it's the same kind of thing like i'll i'll spend a lot of time on it and then i'll run it by abby usually too many times she's like sick of me and it's like stop showing me just go do it go send it to the t-shirt vendor um and i think it's kind of how our workflow work is in general right we each have tasks that we will take on you know we build a big spreadsheet kind of like our to-do list at the start of the year um for this race at least and um you know we kind of divide it up and uh we all take primary responsibility for things but we're constantly communicating about how things are going yeah so i'll do like pretty much all of the communication most of the social media i do almost all of our written material. Um, so like the course book, Brent did the beautiful schematic and kind of all of the the graphic charts and everything. But then I wrote the course descriptions and um, I'll do the, you know, racer communications, emails, those kinds of things. And I think, again, those are like drawing on our individual strengths, but then I'll send them over to Brent and he's like, oh, wait, you missed this really cool checkpoint in the way you were writing about that section. So let's add a note about you know, Heiner's hang gliding launch, for example. Um, so even, even when we divide up discrete tasks, we're still probably over talking about them with each other. I think what it boils down to the fact you have a natural skill set on your own, but then there's an overlap between each other where you act as each other's backup. You double check the work, right? And so it's almost like a Venn diagram where there are parts where you connect pretty strongly and parts where you don't connect that strongly, but that's just based upon what you're really good at. And I think yeah. that that's, and I think that's an important message that if, you know, I, I had the chance one time to interview uh, a, a partnership, a, a race directing partnership. And during the course of the interview, which never made it to air, by the way, because the partnership kind of came apart at the seams. It was very clear that when they were talking, they attempted to be like, this is your silo. This is my silo. In my head, I was kind of like, that's not how this operates. And so in some ways, you kind of replicate your adventure racing experience as race directors. Right. Because as an event racing team, you have to rely upon each other inside the team setting. You've transferred that to the race directing setting. And I think that's an important thing to realize that if, if not for your strong partnership, that, of course, is always going to be friction in every partnership. I mean, welcome to the real world. Right. It is always sunshine and roses. The fact that you work together and you, you are able to navigate those successfully is what makes it a good partnership. That's, and that's like, the way we I see both it. Have- full-time demanding careers also um, outside of rootstock. And so there are times of the year where my job is more um, consuming and times of the year where Brent's is. And so, you know, in addition to skill sets, we also balance each other's calendars and make sure that one of us can be accountable pretty much all of the time. And that's why it takes a year to put the race on. Absolutely. Right, because yeah. you just don't have the time. And so you have to begin the planning a year in advance. And, and it's interesting because it's, it's, we say a year, it's actually years. Because you began to scope out this area years ago when you take time out there your family to go look at this, look at all that um, and see that. And so you and so we've mentioned like the the the, the skip, we've mentioned various parts of the race, right? The sponsorships, the volunteers, how you two work together. Brent, what do you think? Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think one final point there, and we've had this conversation with some interested parties before. So just kind of sharing it publicly, like to your point about it's been years. I mean, it's really actually been more like 20 years, right? Or close to 20 years. I mean, I've been adventure racing, I think now for 17 or 18 years. 
And, um, you know, we've had these conversations with some folks about like, what do we do to get to the point where we took on endless mountains? And we, you know, to be, to be honest, like to be clear, there's no right way to do this. Like you could have no experience in adventure racing and decide I want to put on an expedition race and you have the right to do that. Right. But, um, my personal feeling, at least I, I think Abby would agree is that, um, to put on an event of this magnitude, right. You know, you have to have been around for a while. And, you know, so we've been competing in races for almost 20 years as racers, um, at all levels, right. From the beginner level to quite experienced and, and quite competitive. Um, you know, we've traveled internationally. I think I've competed in 15 or so ARWS events at this point, um, 125 races total, whatever it might be. Right. And I, I don't say any of that in a, uh, you know, I'm not trying to brag about that, but like we also are are, are are students of the sport, right? And so we are constantly learning from those experiences with an eye toward our race directing. Um, you know, we took our time getting here. We've been directing races for over a decade, both uh, for goals Adventure Racing Association first and and now as Rootstock Racing. And I, I think we've just, we've really applied so much of that to this particular event. It's true of all of our races, but this one in particular, you know, it literally has been years and years and years in the making, even if it wasn't necessarily a conscious plan for most of that time. The idea so, of building base. Got Abby. It's a blessing and a curse, right? And I imagine most other um, partners, life partners who race together would experience the same thing. You know, you draw on each other's energy and you feed off of it. Um, but it becomes relatively consuming when adventure racing is such a part of each of your individual lives and then such a part of your relationship too. So um, I, the amount of time that we spend on adventure racing in our daily lives is um, probably embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, this race is essentially a second full-time job. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, for... That we share between the two of us. Yeah, and, and when you really, when you combine the work that the two of us are doing, it's probably more than that. Now, some of that is like incredibly concentrated. So it's not necessarily that we're working on it every single day of every single week. But when you put it all together, it, it, it really does add up. Um, yeah. So there's there's a uh, uh, an old an old expression. If you want to make a million dollars as a bike shop owner, start with two million dollars. Right. right. And no one gets into adventure racing for the for the for the private jets and the and the villas in Nice. So right. so putting aside yeah. that component first, why do you think it is that you and Abby are so dedicated to the sport in this matter? What do you take out of it? Much like the volunteers take something out of it, you have to take something out of it too. Yeah. So it's an interesting question. Um after the race, um I was talking to Jesse Tubb, who's, you know, um He's a, he's a teammate of ours. Uh, we've raced with him a fair bit as Rootstock Racing. He was racing for Bones Adventure Racing um, this year. And he was talking to me about the race. And he actually kind of described it to me as like basically kind of like uh, art, right? And, you know, I've been actually had for some reason been thinking about that a little bit and um, before. And, you know, again, I, this could sound so off like i'm not like looking at what we're doing like comparing ourselves to some like amazing professional artist but you know i think it has felt increasingly like um an art project of sorts one that we really put our our hearts and souls into we pay put an awful lot of attention to the smallest details you know like i i spend tens of hours just working on bibs 
right? Both the design of the bibs and the communication with bibs. And, you know, it's just, it's an amazing amount of kind of like detailed work. And while it's sometimes frustrating, it's also incredibly rewarding to kind of complete each one of those steps, knowing that you're building this this experience that 100 to 150 people are going to have. And that's ultimately what it's really about for me, at least, is um, watching these racers go through what they're going through, right, through this journey. And that journey starts before the race, right? So it's not just about the course, but it's it's really about everything from once they've signed up through kind of the post-race. And um it's just, I, I personally get an awful lot of satisfaction just kind of like living vicariously through, through them. I think I said this during the race and I, I told people afterwards, um, you know, like when you're racing, you have your experience and to some degree you have the experience of the two, three other people that you're racing with as a team. And especially in these big five day races. And we talk about how there's just so much emotion wrapped up in these five days of racing, right? Some people have said you live a, a, a year's worth of emotions in five days during an expedition race. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And then maybe you multiply that by four times, you know, or three times when you're kind of racing with a, a team. And, you know, this race, especially in a way more so than last year, I found myself just kind of like, almost not feeling it fully all the time, but like watching these 110 people and then another 60 people with the light race, all having radically different experiences and knowing exactly what they're kind of going through, both from my experience, but also because I know what each step of that course looks like. Um, and so that's both overwhelming. And I had some moments during the race this year where I was quite overwhelmed uh, emotionally watching it unfold. Um, but it also, you know, the joy that people have when they finish is is also something that I, I take away from it. So I don't know if you feel differently. No, I think, you know, this sounds really cheesy, but in some ways, like, this is our community. These are our people. And what a gift for us to kind of be able to create this and then have all of our friends come and like play in the woods, right? In some ways, this is like our ability to offer a love letter to the adventure racing community. And, and I, again, I know that sounds cheesy, but it really feels like that. Like this is our way of expressing gratitude for how much we have gotten from this sport and from so the it's, people. It's, a, it's a super radical form of giving back to the sport. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, I see super I mean, radical. I mean, by that is the idea that it's, it requires an incredible amount of just of everything, right. Of time and effort and resources. And, you know, every, every moment you spend doing one thing, you could be doing another, right. So you're sacrificing one thing for another. So you choose not to do something in order to do this. And, and but clearly many of us find that, that, that transaction is worth it. Right. You know, yeah, we get you know, ton out of it. You know right, I say, you know, I, when I, when I, I tell people, by virtue of my profession working inside of schools, I had the chance to work with with people about their future. I talk to young people about where they want to go. And I always tell them, keep my, at, the, at the end of your day, remember that the job that you're doing, you're exchanging a day of your life for it. That you're you're giving, you're you're choosing to give up one thing in, in, in response to another. And I think that that's a valid point. And what you're saying is, is that for as much as you give back to make the race happen, you take as much out of it. And if not more, I bet if you would ask, I bet you would say that you probably get more out of it than you put into it. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think we have both said that in some ways race directing is more um, like personally gratifying than doing an expedition race. Um, and I started to, there's, there came a point where directing a 24 hour race 
wasn't quite as like emotionally satisfying. Um, it was kind of like, okay, this is like, we're going through the, not we're going through the motions, but like, I wasn't getting that same um, feeling of, oh, this, this is worth it um, for the amount of work that it took. And you didn't feel this way. And Brent and I, like, I, I want to make it clear, like our path has not always been totally parallel, right? There have been moments where each of us in different ways has said like, mm, maybe I need to step back a little bit, or maybe this is too much, or maybe it's it's occupying too much space in our individual lives and in our collective life. Um, but when we stepped into doing the five-day race, I felt that come back in like such um, deep and consuming ways. You wanted to say something? Yeah. I mean, it, I, I more just to what you just said, I, I think I would just also say that I think a big thing that shifted was was when Abby found herself at home more during the planning process, right? So like, uh, I, th- I mean, I'm speculating. Yeah. No, I think that's true. But I think with like 24-hour length races or such. But, you know, when I talk about being able to envision what people are going through every step of the way, you know, Abby can't do that. Um, you know, she's not out in the woods with me doing the scouting. She doesn't know what checkpoint... 22 looks like <laughs> uh, 22 is one that gave, you know, probably a lot of people don't know what it looks yeah. like either. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> it's yeah, not just Abby. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, like it, that is one of the things for me that is, has been constant throughout our journey. Um, not that it's always been easy for me either. You know, I I've had my moments of challenges as a race director. I think all race directors have those kind of like, you know, darker moments of just wondering, like, why are they doing it? And it's so much time that we put into it and so much energy um, and so much fear, honestly, like there's a lot of fear directing these races, um, you know, but there's always that satisfaction. And, and as to Abby's first point, like I'm at a point where, and I've been at this point for a while where I absolutely get frankly, a lot more out of this side of adventure racing than I do as a racer at this point. And I, not to say I don't get an awful lot as a racer, but this is something different. So I, I've I've heard that the um, printing a race of this magnitude town, the phrase of this magnitude is good. They call it a high wire act. That there's a lot there's a lot of moving pieces at once, right? And you tip the domino on the race, and you put 35 teams around the course, and for the next 120 hours, right? And usually around 95 for the winners, but 120 hours, those teams are going to have to travel the course. That you, you created a world. And you're responsible for them inside that world. How many checkpoints were on the course? Uh, I think over, was it over hundred? So when you get when you all up, it's over hundred. So according to the tracker, um, there right. were 107 for a full course, not including transition areas and not including um, all the individual ropes. Points. The small checkpoints at the rope section, of which there were an additional 10. So we okay. could call it 107, call it 117, whatever you like. Yeah. So you had you had to find 117 places where people had to get to. Now, not everybody goes full course. We know that. But yeah. that's well, yeah, that's kind of high wire, right? There's yeah. I have to put 117 spots out there in the universe that have to be accurate to a piece of paper that we're handing them. And how many maps were racers handed? Sorry, what was that? How many maps were they handed? I think they were somewhere high 20s. I had 23 in my head, but that might not be quite right. I thought it was like 27 or 28. I have to double check that. But okay. Yeah. Just supplemental. Always use your supplemental. 27 yeah, maps. Including- Right. Not including supplementals. Yeah. So let's say around around 30 maps used to find yeah. roughly about 117 checkpoints over the course of how many stages? There were eight stages this year. Yeah. Is, and how did those stages break out in terms of paddling, trekking, yeah. mountain biking, and, and climbing? So two were paddling, 
two were trekking, the other four were biking, but there were two embedded trekking sections within the big bike. <laughs> they had to get off their bike, leave their bike there, go in the woods, get back in the bike and keep going. Yeah. Stage B, which we really technically said was just one stage of the race, it was a big bike with these embedded loops, was really actually more like five stages, right? There was a bike stage, a trekking stage, another bike stage, trekking and ropes, and then a final bike stage to the TA. Um, it was a unique challenge for the racers, I think. I think a, a lot found that stage to be incredibly challenging. And I think a big part of that challenge was the the way teams mentally approached it. Yeah, I agree with that. I stage for the staff and volunteers. And it was very, it was very challenging for us that the first two days. Yeah, I was, I was a witness to that about 13 hours into the race. I had the chance you mentioned earlier, I was embedded. I I took on the the sacrifice of going to a hotel while the rest of you were out in the woods. Um, and we were at Penwell's hotel and Sean Bryant and his family who just were outstanding. the one rainy night of the race too. The one guys. rainy night. They were pouring rain and we were under the awning. Thank God for that. Um, the funny part was that we had actually set up the interview area for the dark zone inside the hotel. I took a photo and I and uh, someone saw the photo and said, Brian, you're an idiot. They're going to destroy that hotel. Racers and mud and laying. I guess we moved outside and racers are not allowed in the hotel. There was a, a water spigot there worked out great. And that was fantastic. But I was amazed that I saw them like 13 hours into the race between 13 and roughly 20 or so hours into the race and how smoked they were that early in the race. Um, and I think they just had a really hard, the heat of the day, the, the, the pre-race jitters, you know, 13 hours. I, I pointed out to one person, I said, well, you're 13 hours in, you have a, you have 107 hours to go. How's it feeling? And he's like, don't, don't say it that way. Like, don't, <laughs> don't, you're not helping us out. Yeah. yeah, there was such a constellation of circumstances that created that level of depletion, I think, so early in the race. Um, you know, we started on the water. It was incredibly hot and humid and sunny, and people kind of got baked. Windy and then well. it, the wind kicked up, so they weren't able to eat and drink because they were just battling the headwind. And then soon after they got on their bikes, the rain started. And so it was just this, like, cycle of changing conditions that people had to grapple with in addition to the the monumental task of imagining being out there for five days, which I've always said the hardest day, the hardest night of an expedition race is night one. Because you're going through most of the time you're not sleeping and you're like, holy cow, how can I keep doing this? I got this portrait ahead of me. More sustainable. You know, so, and for the for the folks out there planning for the media, you know, when we decided to do the the, the man, so there was a five minute mandatory media stop for every team during the race. And we were fortunate that it happened on that night, you know, going into the the 13 hours into the race. It was the first night of the race. Um, at first, I was I was concerned that doing it then was going to be too soon in the race, that there was not going to be enough to talk about at that point. I was quickly proven wrong because the race delivered and gave a lot to talk about. And later on in the race, it would not have been workable because the tail of the race had gotten so long that to talk to every single racer, there was so much spread between the first team and the team that was at the back of the field that yeah. it would have been... 30 hours sitting in one spot. And, but I, I do think that from a, from a, a media perspective and a, and a podcasting perspective, having that embedded media stop and then being able to call that into a, a, an hour and 40 minute broadcast was really a very powerful thing to do. When you look at the metrics that came out of the, out of the endless mountains, it was, it's the most popular by a mile of the, of the different pe- people really enjoyed hearing that. Um, shout out to, to Brian Menard and Brian Menard is on, is on team. Is it Wolf Howlers, Moon Howlers? Woodhowlers. Yeah. I, I I spoke to Ryan after the race. Between the wind and the trucks, there was one uh, interview that could not make it to the final. It was Brian and Blair and Blair Whoa. Bingham, who just, if they deserved 
to have a chance to be heard. It was them. And I went and I worked on that piece of, and I edited it and it was just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Oh. So Brian and Blair, I know you're out there and I, 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 you're the only one we couldn't get to. So, you know, you got to come back and race next time and I'll make sure we get good sound for that one. There was a question that I asked, um, I, I asked pretty much every team the same question when we were at the hotel. And the question was this, and I want to ask it to the two of you. And I, and I want you to, to I almost want to have you leave the room and answer. I'm not going to do that to you. I think we'll keep you guys together, but, but Abby, we're going to start with you for the answer for this one. Cause I want to give you a shot at it first. <clears throat> In the planning of the, of the race itself and all that leads up to it and reading about it and talking about it and planning it, there's the race that you think you're going to have. And then there's the race that you are having or the race that you had. So when you look back on the Endless Mountains 2023 and you think about what you did and what you didn't do, how do those two things compare? How you thought it was going to go versus how it went? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, and I think if you had asked me at the Penwells Hotel 13 hours into the race, my answer would have been different than it is now. Um, as I said earlier, I don't think I appreciated I don't think we appreciated how logistically ambitious the course was and especially how logistically ambitious the first 30 hours was um, because we were running the 30 hour race alongside it because um, Brent ended up being in the woods for the better part of 24 hours because he wanted to be on site at the ropes um, just in case, you know, anything went wrong and either of us could have done that, but but he felt strongly that as somebody who has uh, wilderness first responder training, he wanted to be on site there. Um, and I ended up uh, being kind of the point person for both races and for our four-year-old who was on site um, for the, those entire 30 hours almost. And I got to the end of that um, and was about as fried as I've ever been Um during a, a moment of race directing, you know, in, in uh, 13 years of doing it. And so, um, that was not how I envisioned the race going in, but it actually like should have been predictable if we had really thought about it. Um, and it, 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 it got better from there. And, and also we, we gave up some, we gave over some control to our, our volunteer staff, which, um, made a really big difference. I think for the two of us, by the end of the race, we, we kind of gave over the reins to some of the transportation logistics and some of the um, TA management in a way that we hadn't set it up to be able to do at the beginning. But uh, we, we, together with this team of volunteers, was able to kind of put things in place that needed to happen. And, and we had a great debrief with that group of people afterward to think about how we can do that in advance next time. Um, so I, that's, that's, that's an extended answer to your question. But I think I think the logistical... Um, complexity of the first 30 hours. Luckily, that was the first first 30 hours, because if it had been the last 30 hours, I don't know that I would be involved in doing another Endless Mountains. <laughs> and, 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 and for the race director out there, what made it so logistically complex? Like what was the what was the thing that if you, you know, it worked out fine and the race went well and, and folks who were fried were unfried eventually and, there, and, and all's well that ended well. But looking back on it, would you have done it that same way or would you have changed something inside that section or did it just it was just the way the race unfolded, the way the racers fell out? You had one team that had a big lead and everybody else. You had to think about them like they were playing a role. Ben Racing, to that credit, had a very successful race. You had teams that were all spread out. You had Team Hootis, who's personally Dark Zone favorite race of the uh, team of the entire race. They were towards the back. Was it the was it the tail of the race that caused that challenge? 
No, by did you wanna? No, go ahead. By by the 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 thirty hour mark, the field you know relative to what it became was not as spread out as as um was it wasn't that impactful. I think we had two teams lose a member in the first 15 hours of the race. And and we had to figure out the logistics of getting them back to Williamsport. We also had two light teams, I believe, retire from the course. Um, I think it was more than that. It it may have been more than two. Um, We had gear that had to be moved for both races. So we had kind of trucks moving the the five-day race gear through multiple TAs and then also moving the 30-hour gear through different TAs and some of the same TAs. We had to have two teams of volunteers at each TA. And then as Brent said, we had these two embedded sections, but that required three teams of volunteers because of the way they were set up. And then there were two other staffed checkpoints in those first 30 hours. So there was just- I'm confused just hearing um, it. I can only imagine what it was like actually- on site at night, like making it yeah. all happen. So I think if we were to do it again, I might try to make the first day of the race a little bit more manageable logistically if we were going to run both races. Got but it. the way we set up the course, I, I think that the the logistics were inevitable. The stress may have been mitigated by a little bit more of forethought on our parts. But yeah, I'm not sure. You know, Abby and I don't agree on everything. (laughs) Um, I don't know that I really think we could have avoided it. You know, I think we both said out loud to ourselves and then to the volunteer crew beforehand, the first 30 hours is going to be really hard. um, And then it should settle. And I think it took more like 40 hours probably to settle, honestly. So it was like a little bit longer. Um, I think the thing that we probably, and I don't know how exactly we would have avoided it, but... um, I think as Abby alluded to, like we ended up in a situation where our normal kind of division and balance of labor between the two of us was kind of pushed aside because I was in at the rope site. And, you know, as Abby alluded to, I felt relatively strong about that from a safety management standpoint more than anything else. Um, you know, I kind of felt like an ownership of that. And, um, and the reality was I was there by myself for most of that stretch which allowed us to have volunteers elsewhere. Because otherwise, if I, you know, like that was a job I felt like I could do with the ropes guides who were we had hired. But if it wasn't me, if it was people that were, you know, not familiar with the site themselves or not medically trained, we probably would have had to have two or three people in there. I think it was just, you know, it's just those extra checkpoints, right? I mean, I think we had at the end of day two, we had a, a, a moment where we had three transition areas open. For part of that time, we had the light finish race open, finish line open, and we had three manned checkpoints open as well. So we ended up with a situation where I think we had like seven different staffed locations open. And that doesn't account for the fact that we also had to be kind of like figuring out this incredibly elaborate puzzle of moving gear around for two totally different races at that point. It was just that that was a lot, Um, you know, but back to your earlier questions, right? Like the staff were just amazing. So, you know, like with one of our man checkpoints, Dave Powers sat there for like 20 hours, maybe longer. I don't know. He was great. What do you hear on that guy? Checking people in. And it was at at 630 in the morning at the ropes. We were probably only halfway done uh, at the rope site. I'd been there since 10 the night before. 
um, the head guide, Chad from, um, Crooked Creek campground and Crooked Roots Adventures comes up to me and says, so I think two of my guys are going to be taken off around nine or nine 30 in the morning. And I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so like, I'm getting prepared to potentially belay myself. And instead we put out a call and Keith and, um, uh, Ken, Ken, Ken Money, Ken Money mm-hmm. from Michigan rolled in and they belayed for like six hours. And, you know, but again, that removed two people that were supposed to be helping kind of with the rest of the race. So I don't know, like we, we talked about the reality that we were going to have to figure it out to some degree on the fly. Cause that's adventure racing. And that's also adventure race directing. And I don't know that we could have done a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think it was, in, I remember my own memory is, is going from the beginning of the race to Penn Wells and, and editing that, that edition of Darkstone. I was awake for like 37 hours and, and editing that, piece at like hour 36 when i hit when i published that piece i literally published it and went to sleep i woke up in the morning and i'm like did i actually put a podcast out last night like i had to check my phone and i was like i actually did and nobody was flipping out in the universe about it no one was like what do you so I, it worked out well but like sitting there trying to edit it so that the high wire act was for a lot of people going that and I, I think to your point someone who had observed it and someone who had lived it i think in many ways i think it was just going to be what it was going to be Right. And it was going to unfold the way it unfolded. And, and to your point about the ropes and, the, and all the logistics, all the movement, like anybody who volunteers at a five day adventure race, you know, what you're getting yourself into. Right. And, you know, you're going to be like you mentioned Dave Powers doing 20 hours in that one section. I mean, Dave could, couldn't do enough for the race. I mean, we're talking about a guy that just stepped up in a huge way. And that's yeah. what you agree to do. Right. And so I, I agree there. But I but those it did smooth out after those those stages. And I think that when you discussed the idea of giving over some of the control to some of the more experienced volunteers, it cleared things up on your end a little bit too. And then eventually the race is just flowing. Like the yeah. hard part of the race is behind you and then people are just all about the course. And then you're dealing with like a food truck possibly being late or having it or getting special food dietary restrictions at a local supermarket at eight in the morning. Like those kinds of things you do and it all wraps up. But Brent, I'm not letting you off the hook though. You have to answer the yeah. question. The race yeah. that you thought you were going to have versus the race you had. I might cheat a little bit to be honest <laughs> with you here, but I'll give you a quick technical answer. You know, I think the one that I would just say is like, you know, I think it's just like you you come up with these elaborate plans for how you're going to move your volunteers around and inevitably that doesn't work. Right. right. And like someone really needs to sleep. Right. Or someone, you know, um, just kind of is there for daytimes, but not nighttimes. And you didn't fully account for that. And, you know, we're not going to make anyone go out there and like suffer. Right. You know, so I think that's the hardest part. And I, I you know, it's just like you, you get surprised by those things and you have to shift. Um, I actually personally felt like the race went more or less according to plan. You know, I, I think, of course, we had a few teams in that first 24 hours that had issues and more than I would have liked to have, but like it happens. Right. You know, and most of those things were heat related or there was a bike crash. Someone had a kind of like a pre-existing health condition thing that flared up, unfortunately on them. And, you know, those things happen. You, you, you obviously hope to minimize that, but nothing huge, nothing major. And after that first day, it generally really settled down. Um, so that was all good. No, you know, your question makes me actually think really more about scouting. Right. And, you know, so going back to that kind of like topic, which we danced around a little bit, like, you know, I spent a lot of time out in the woods and I go out every time I go out in the woods, I have a plan. And I know, and Abby and I always say like, you're not going to, that's not what you're going to end up doing. Um, and despite the fact that, you know, I've had that experience now with 
probably 30 or 40 races directed, it never ceases to amaze me how I go out to the woods with this grand plan to get X, Y, and Z done. And I sometimes don't even get X done. He's like, <laughs> I'll see you Saturday for dinner. I'm like, yeah, I'll see you Monday morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or it's hey, like, Chad, I'm coming in, make up the bed, crooked creek. I'm yeah. inbound. And I think one more weekend will do it. And it's four weekends. Right. Um, and, uh, that's just it. Like, you know, nothing specific there, but there's like, that's kind of, that's the hardest part for me in a way, especially at this point um, of race directing is just the, the the grind of the scouting part, which is just, it's a lot. Yeah. So what's the future for the Endless Mountains? We have a tentative date set for the next one, which will be the week of June 23rd, 2025. Um, we've alluded to us both having other professional lives, but we're, we both work in education. I'm a college professor and Brenta high school teacher. And so we are at the whim of the academic calendar and can only direct multi-day races uh, during the summer. Um, so that's actually the first week we can do it. Um, we are not announcing a location yet, but um, we... We are actively working on that and hopefully we'll be able to announce sooner than later. Um, so, that, so that's two years from now. Yeah, two years. Two years yeah. from now. And is, is the two year break a common thing to carry in adventure racing for a five day race? I'd say it's like a 50 50. I think mm -hmm. a, a number of races do it that way. Some, some for whatever reason, do it every year. Um, I think our philosophy on it is um, first of all, just for our, our ability to keep doing this in a sustainable way, we, we can't do it every year. Um, I think we also, as racers, know that, um, you know, a lot of racers that are um, active in the expedition circuit, they don't want to do the same race every year. Like, we would love to have people come back and do, you know, all four or five of the Endless Mountains races we have planned in the PA Wilds. Realistically, like I would be surprised if that final number ends up being more than five to 10 people. Like people have other things they want to do. Well, but to uh, your credit though, you did share before the race, what percentage of people return from 22 to 23? Yeah, depending on how you calculate it, whether it's the team name or the actual racer, it's between 70 and 80%. Okay, which so that's, that's almost four fifths. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was like 70-ish people, right, that did both, have done both of the the additions, but still, right? But like, to your point, year after year after year would get yeah. challenging. I got you. Yeah, okay. yeah. And like, you know, people that, you know, part of the goal of Endless Mountains is like, we want to get more people into expedition racing and we want people to level up, you know. Um, Pennsylvania is amazing. We love it. We really think it's, a, a as we've said, Time and time again now, we think it's a underappreciated outdoor kind of playground um, in North America that most people have no idea about. Uh, but I also get why people are drawn toward the Cascades and Expedition Oregon or, you know, British Columbia and Expedition Canada or, you know, the, the race down in the Ozarks or for a smaller number of teams, they want to get on a plane and they want to go over to Europe. They want to go to Africa. They want to go do, you know, a much more, let's, well, let's just say like a sexier race, right? Like someplace that's got a little bit more of that, like allure and magic to it, which we get. And we've made those decisions ourselves. And, and we do too. So like, you know, I think that every other year model makes it a little easier for folks to actually get out there and try different things and then hopefully come back. Like, you know, I think we feel very strongly we offer something, you know, unique um, as expedition races go. Um, and we think we, you know, again, we've, we've been doing this for a long time and have put a lot of thought and put a lot of thought into our races. So we think there's an experience here for folks. 
Um, but I did want to add one little additional teaser, um, again, without giving kind of details, but I think our, our vision for Endless has evolved a bit. So the original vision really was, you know, four or five races in the Pennsylvania wilds and then we'll see. Right. Um, I think what we're, we're pondering is don't quote, you know, don't write this in stone, but maybe more something like a two out of three year model. I'm not sure we're, I'm not sure we fully agree on that yet, but um, it's an idea um, where one of the two would be in Pennsylvania, uh, but that we're going to explore the uh, idea of directing endless um, outside of Pennsylvania as well. Um, and so we've got three or four spots that we've talked about um, potentially looking at, and we're excited about all of them. They have unique challenges and benefits. And, you know, we're just trying to figure out whether that's going to be 2025 or, or we're going to wait a little longer on taking it outside of Pennsylvania. And but. and working with, you know, as we talked about earlier, working with ARWS and making sure it aligns with their calendar and, and the geography of the way races are going to move around North America over the next several years. Right. Because there's a, there's, there's a, an audience size limit and there's like, Right now, I mean, there's a bit of a, it's a, it's our, our cup runneth over, right? We had the, the demonstration race down in Ozark. We had Endless Mountains. Um, you have Ben Racing, obviously, does America's toughest race. And then you have Expedition Canada, right? And so those, those, those are four five day races that occur in the area. What else, Abby, do you want to add to that? Yeah, so we would be remiss, remiss if we didn't thank ARWS for really being an ambassador to the sport internationally and connecting us with a number of brands that ended up becoming race partners, including Moose Jaw, Garmin, Squirt Cycling, and Lubanzi Wine out of South Africa. They actually sent a can of wine for each person competing in the five-day race, prizes for the 30-hour race, and and bubbly to spray for the top three teams in the in the five-day race as well. What a, what a sport that that wine will travel across international time zones to be given out in Pennsylvania race. Beautiful stuff. Well done, South Africa. Oh, and, and the bibs. The bibs people wore were produced in South Africa. So there you go. Um, yeah. But Brian, I, I did want to also just say, because you noted kind of working with the other ARWS race directors, right? You know, I think it's also just important to recognize, you know, while we sometimes in these conversations focus on three or four events, uh, there's dozens of other events happening, right, um, in the North American racing circuit between the United States and Canada and to uh, Mexico as well. Um, and, uh, you know, like our our hope of directing outside of Pennsylvania comes with a huge caveat, right? Like we we feel very strongly that we are going to have conversations with local race directors and the local racing community in these other states before we actually move ahead, you know? So we actually have a meeting scheduled with someone um, shortly to talk about kind of a, one of our, our out-of-state options. And if we can't figure out something that works for the local racing up there, like it's not gonna happen, um, you know? So, you know, I think that the family is much bigger than just the expedition races. And uh, yeah, maybe we're like, uh, you know, it's a bigger event, but it's not necessarily that it's more important than a 12 or 24 hour race at a regional level. Well, I think that you realize a, a point there, too, is that the, the the small, somewhat insular nature of venture racing and venture race directing means that we have to, we have to play together nice in the sandbox. And that it, yeah. it would be it would be it would be inappropriate and polite to go crashing into another region's race calendar without having a sense of humility and saying, listen, we'd like to talk to you about this and can we have a conversation about it as opposed to just showing up and announcing your race there. That's not, it's impolite to do it that way. Yeah. And, and no, to that I, point, and you wouldn't do that. 
No. And, you know, a few years ago, someone, I actually don't know if the event ended up happening, but someone popped up into Pennsylvania um, and kind of threw together a race or was talking about throwing together a race. And it didn't feel good, right? Like it didn't feel good not to have the conversation. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm sure no one would have said no. I think this was back in the days when we were still working with Goals Adventure Racing Association. Um, but yeah, like we're, we're a big family and we should, we should really be working and coordinating together, I think on these kinds of events. Brian, should we tease the one that we keep talking about? That's like 10 years in the making at this point. Go for it. (laughs) So our ambitions to create an expedition race stem from gosh, like 2009, a conversation at Rodney, um, Vallello and Amy Bartoletti's, uh, longest day where we talked about designing a race that went from New York City to Philadelphia. Um, and that obviously never emerged, but it's still like you know, in the back of my head is could we ever pull it off? And, you know, we've talked to you about it. We've continued to talk to Rodney and Amy about it. Rodney and Amy, again, of, of the New York Adventure Racing Association. It would be the um, greatest race in history of adventure racing. After that, <laughs> shut it down. Nothing else could possibly replace it. The final endless mountains. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the final checkpoint is climbing uh, the tallest building in downtown Philadelphia. That's you're going to punch yeah. the final checkpoint. I think it's the same. Maybe when we're 70 and ready to hang it up and it's a little easier to hang a checkpoint from an elevator <laughs> under a bridge overpass. <laughs> exactly. And no longer going in the woods. But yeah. I think I think that that, that, that point, I mean, you know, we, we all have, when you, when, you, when you do adventure racing, you kind of live in a, in, a, in a world in which you think about like possibility. Right. Like you dreamed up the endless mountains as, as, as a couple and you talked about it and you made it happen. Right. You brought it to fruition. And there are other races out there. I know that the guys know that they, the guys outside of Western National Chain are they're putting their first race on out there. Right. So there's all these aspiring race directors that are putting these these races on a 6, 12, 14, 18, 20 hours, 36 hours, whatever it is, all the way to five days. And I think they keep doing that because they love bringing that to the to the people, to the crowd. Like people really and I, and I, and, you know, we mentioned before about sounding cheesy and kind of, you know, feeling kind of trite, but I, I absolutely am amazed. And we saw it time and time again, in those mountains, like go back and look at the finish line photos. There are, there are people on that course who, when they started that race, they didn't know if they could do it and they did it. And yeah. that's yeah. an incredibly life changing event that people have. And I think, I think we, those of us who do a lot of racing and those of us who talk a lot about racing, I think we, we lose a sense of perspective, we get a little myopic. We, we forget how yeah. big a deal this is to people. Yeah. Someone, it might've been you. I can't remember. Someone I think on day two or day three asked me like, so, you know, who gives you more satisfaction or something? Who do you enjoy watching more? Right. Like the, the top teams duking it out. Right. Or, or the other teams. Right. And, you know, Abby made the point earlier, like part of the reason we love doing this is, is to, uh, you know, give our community and our friends this experience. And, probably 60 or 70% of the racers here, maybe more, like we know quite well, but there's a much, you know, there's a smaller number of them that we either kind of know in passing or, or don't know because they're out for the first time. Um, you know, watching these teams, you know, looking kind of at the, at the results, right. Watching who dis, who you've mentioned quite a bit, right. Uh, moon howlers has been around forever, but they're this, you know, uh, you know, Brian was at our race last year and I know he wasn't thrilled with the way his, his race or his team's race went, um, this year, they lost a teammate on night one due to a bike crash. And, um, you know, he and Blair just kept a smile on. And, you know, I think from his perspective, it's like, you know, 
every year gets better, right? You know, you do a little bit more each year. Um, you Blue know, Bolt Rock Hop, like Blue Bolt Rock Hop, first race, um, you know, bipolar, um, you know, for Kate Matthews, it was her first big race. Um, epic. Can I, can I pause there real quickly? We'll come back to Kate in a second. So not only did Kate do the race, but her husband, Jim Mernon, set up, helped set up the finish line. There was a couch there, yeah. inflatable couches for people, and there was a rug, and we had a tracker. Jimmy made pizzas for everybody as they came across the line, brought his own pizza oven. But we have to note that after Kate finished the race, she went back, she took a nap, and she came out yeah. with her bum shoulder, and she was making and serving pizzas. Yeah. So yep. she had that, yeah. that Venn diagram of racer and volunteer, that that rarely yeah. touched holy grail, if you will, of, of being yeah. French race, you know, the, the amazingness there. But yeah, like, you know, Epic Nav was another team, this amazing story. It was this team of three folks that literally came together in the last three to four weeks before the race. And then one of them couldn't come. One of them um, couldn't race. And the other two had basically never met each other. And uh, they started the race. And, and they only knew Sunday night that they were racing as a team. Yeah. So they um, even had to like figure out all their team. amazing. Just, just amazing, right? But you know, Ubuntu had a, at least a couple folks on that team who were in their first time. I think uphill both ways. A Canadian team who we'd never met were doing their first multi-day race. Um, you know, I think the rest of uh, Trust the Compass. Trust the Compass had two guys, two of our friends um, from kind of the mid-Atlantic, who kind of have been cutting their teeth at rootstock races since the beginning of rootstock and they took on their first big one. Um, and, you know, a, a special shout out probably to three rock who were these two guys um, doing their first big race. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that they were nervous before the event kind of asking those questions. I think you've at, you asked this question years ago, I think of James Thurlow, right? Like mm -hmm. of, you know, is this race for me? Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I know they, they kind of reflected publicly about kind of the nerves they were feeling, wondering if they should be there and just running an amazing race. Um, and the cool and thing there was they went out before the race, they had dinner with, with Jim Roundsley who flew over for the race, right? He was here. Jim Roundsley gave them advice during the race and they actually showed him their, their kit and said, we changed our, our bin selection due to you during the race. And Jim yeah. Roundsley was amazed that they had listened to him actually, who was listening to Jim Roundsley, had listened yeah. to Jim and then went and actually, you know, changed their race because of him. Yeah. Well, and I got an email from, from those guys after the race saying they're now thinking about Itera because of Jim. Yeah. Right. But, you know, watching those teams, like, you know, and a lot of those teams are people we don't know. A couple of them have people we know quite well, but most of them are new to us. And just watching their journey from the start line to the finish line is just the most amazing thing. It's fun watching Ben and Bones and Rib and Penticton and No Complaints battle it out up top. But, you know, um, we kind of... You should say No Complaints had one person on the team who was that, an expedition race newbie, Brandon Hopkins. Uh, true. Right. That's true. And I'm, I'm sure there are a few other teams. I think, didn't Solomon Oh, Solomon and Gustodi. It was his first expedition yeah. race. Um, you know, so it's not just, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But just, you know, just amazing watching that, right? Um, really amazing. Yeah. And the, the all inside 120 hours, but it's not. It's it's ten years. It's fifteen years. It's it's a year's yeah. worth of planning. It's talking to sponsors. It's talking to volunteers. It's it's doing the scouting, the scouting, the scouting, right? It's the it's the designing things. It's logistical. It's the writing. It's the media. It's the photography. It's all those pieces come together to create this world that exists for a finite amount of time, but then exists long after it. Yeah, you know, I I always think about the the first time racer who goes to work like the week after. What do you do during the week off? <laughs> like no yeah. one believes them 
Yeah. <laughs> They're like, I did, you did what? For how long? Yeah. You, like the question is, what, when, where did you sleep? That's always the question. Yeah. Like, well, I didn't a whole lot. Well, okay. But you're right. And we, we create that. And I think that it's, I think that it's a, it's a blessing and an honor to get to do it. Um, yeah. So is there anything that was left unsaid that we want to, we want to be thoughtful about you and your family time and it's starting to get dark there. So the, the, the wee ones have to go to sleep soon, but is there anything that you wanted to highlight that you didn't highlight the question I didn't ask? I, I don't know. I, I mean, nothing's coming to mind. I'm always happy to talk shop. Um, I guess I would just end with a thank you. You know, I, I think I would just thank anyone that's listening that was part of the event. However, you were part of it. You showed up and you raced. You showed up and volunteered. You cheered for the racers on the sideline. Uh, you were at home. Dot watching at home. You happen to be a, a, a partner or a sponsor who helped us behind the scenes or, get the race to the start line. Partner who let their partner race and yeah. kind of have that experience, and but, you stayed home and held down the shop. But we 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 really do genuinely appreciate and and thank everybody for choosing endless mountains you know there's so many other events to choose from and uh you know people have busy lives and it takes an awful lot to sign up for these things a lot of resources both financial but also time and energy and emotional you know emotional resources to get yourself through this race um and as abby said that's especially true for people's families who are also along for the ride often from home <laughs> um and just thank everybody for being part of it and uh for trusting us with your time um and we we definitely are hoping that uh, a lot of people will come back again, whether it's in Pennsylvania next time or somewhere else. Well, there you have it, folks. Dark Zone number 76. Thanks to Brent and Abby for their honest and thoughtful comments. A special thanks to everybody who raced the Endless Mountains. So many teams were called out. So many good memories and stories. We appreciate you listeners for being here. Thanks for being part of the Dark Zone. Keep racing and keep training. Go get them. And thank you again to our charity partner, Ascend Athletics, for all that you bring to young women in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We are proud to support your mission of developing leadership and community service in that part of the world. Listeners, thanks for being here. You have a lot of choice in how you spend your time, and we're grateful that you choose to spend it with the Dark Zone. To help us out, go like our Facebook page and head over to your platform of choice and rate, click, and like. Their algorithm likes that when people pay attention to podcasts. Spread the word. Thanks for being here, and good luck racing, and have fun training.